Well, our sermon text for this morning, this first Sunday in the Christmas season, comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. So once again, I'll ask you if you're able to please rise for the hearing of God's word, and we'll read it in Jesus' name. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, since you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, your word is truth. Sanctify us by that truth. God, today as we look at Galatians, I pray that you would show us our sin and need for a savior and point us to Christ and his finished work for us. Strengthen our faith, Lord, and by your word, equip us for your service, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When the fullness of time had come. Do you guys remember the Old Testament account of Esther? This has always been one of my very favorite accounts in all of Scripture. And it's likely because Adventures in Odyssey did a two-part episode telling the story of Esther. I had it on cassette tape, and I would listen to it over and over and over again. Even so, it wasn't just Adventures in Odyssey that made the story of of Esther great. It's also a wonderful account of the faithfulness of God, even when life seemed hopeless, and a wonderful account of God using even the least of these to accomplish his purposes. I'll, I'll remind you of this story just a little bit. It takes place in the days of King Ahasuerus, and he threw a big party. According to the book of Esther, Ahasuerus threw a party for the men, and his wife, Queen Vashti, threw a party for the women. On the seventh day, as Esther says, while the heart of the king was merry with wine, so really, after a full week of partying, and once the king is is once again drunk, he calls for his wife, Vashti, to come to the men's party and show off her beauty before everyone that's there. Understandably, Vashti doesn't want to go and parade herself in front of a room full of drunken men, and so she refuses to go. Her refusal angered the king, and he issued a royal decree, and in Babylon at that time, royal decrees from the king that were sealed with his signet were irrevocable. You couldn't couldn't take them away. This decree declared that Vashti was to be forever banished from the presence of the king. Once the king sobered up and his anger subsided, he began to regret what he had done, but there was no way to fix it. So the king's attendants suggested that that Ahasuerus would find for himself a new bride. He takes their advice and he calls for all the young unmarried women of the country to be brought before him. Before they are, though, they're given a full year of beauty treatments. And then, in order to pick his bride, Ahasuerus really puts on a beauty pageant of epic proportions. One of the women who was chosen to go was Hadassah. She was a Jew who had no living parents, but was instead raised by her uncle Mordecai. And in the Babylonian kingdom, she went by the name of Esther. When she was brought before the king, the pageant was over. Ahasuerus had found his new queen, and they were married. There's one other main character in this account that needs to be mentioned. Ahasuerus is second-in-command a man named Haman. 
Haman was so powerful that everyone in the kingdom would bow down as he passed by. Everyone except for Esther's uncle Mordecai, who only bowed before the one true God. This infuriated Haman, and so he hatched a plot to kill not just Mordecai, but every single Jewish person living under Babylon's rule. Unbeknownst to him and unbeknownst to the king, the king's new beloved bride was Jewish. Haman talked the king into issuing one of those irrevocable decrees that all the Jews could be legally killed, and if you killed them, you got to take as your reward anything that they owned. Now, of course, this troubled all of the Jews terribly. It caused them great fear, and it caused a lot of fear for Esther as well. And so she hatched a plan to try and save her people. After a time of prayer and fasting and preparation, she went to the king uninvited, which doesn't sound like much for the king's wife, but it actually was a scary proposition. If the king didn't lower his golden scepter as she walked in uninvited, it would have cost her her life. But on that day, she found favor with the king. He allowed her to enter and allowed her to speak. Esther invited both the king and Haman to a feast in their honor. And after that feast was over, the king asked, what is it you really want? He understood that she was buttering him up for something else. And instead of asking for what she wanted, she said, come back again, bring Haman for another feast. So they did. They came to the second feast, and once again the king asked, what is it that you really want? And after the second day of feasting, she asked for her people's life and her own life to be spared. She also pointed out that the cause of this danger was the second-in-command, Haman. So Haman ended up being hanged on the gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai upon. Even though the official decree to destroy the Jewish people was irrevocable, the king sent out a second decree to protect them, declaring that the Jews could do whatever they needed to protect themselves from anyone that wished to harm them. So when it came time for that first degree to be enacted, the Jews defended themselves, they overcame their enemies, and they were saved. Esther was in the perfect place at the perfect time. If she hadn't been there, the Babylonian people would have risen up and wiped out the Jewish people once and for all. And when they perished, so too would have perished the promise of God to send a Messiah to save his people from, from their sins. She was in that position for just the right moment so that God's people might be preserved and God's promises might be fulfilled. Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that Jesus was sent at just the right time as well. But what made things right? I know Hans would definitely answer, it's because God says so. And Hans isn't wrong here. But there are a few other reasons why the time was right to send Jesus. The dominant power in the world at the time of Christ was the Roman Empire. And her borders would stretch west all the way into Spain, east all the way to the Persian Gulf, north into Great Britain and the Netherlands, and south into Egypt and other parts of Africa. This massive empire certainly had its drawbacks and problems, but it came with blessings as well. 
The first of these three blessings was known as the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome, which made travel and commerce possible in the Roman Empire in ways that had never been possible in the world before. Now, nothing was ever completely safe, but the world, at least within the Roman Empire, was safer than it had been before that. The second thing, uh, and now you've heard this saying before, right? All roads lead to Rome. The second thing was the Roman system of roads that had been built. It was unlike anything that had been made up until that point. It was a transportation network that extended from Britain to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and from the Danube River in Spain all the way to northern Africa. All in all, they built over 50,000 miles of hard-surfaced highway, and this made travel easier than it had ever been before. The third thing that made it the right time to send Christ was a common language. It was in a form of Greek known as koine, which is what the New Testament is written in. Koine simply means common. It was just common Greek. It was the trade language of the day. So really, you could travel anywhere in the Roman Empire, and you could be understood by anyone you encountered, and you could understand them as well. And this is the first time you could have done that so freely since Babel. The world was in a place where it was more prepared than ever before to have a message pass from one end of the civilized world to the other quickly safely and have it be understood by as many people as possible. The timing was finally right for God to fulfill his promise and to send his Messiah and to have the message of that Messiah travel throughout the world. So that is exactly what God did. He sent Jesus to put on flesh, to be born of a woman, and very importantly, to be born under the law, as Paul tells us. Throughout the book of Galatians, as you read through it, Paul makes one thing abundantly clear, that the law is not enough, was not enough, and never would be enough. The law had no power to save you because we don't have the ability to fulfill the law perfectly. But Jesus was born of a woman and born under the law. And as you look at Jesus' life, you find that he did fulfill the law perfectly. Even in the early days, which we read about in one of our scripture readings from the Gospel of Luke, you hear about Jesus being brought to the temple and encountering Simeon. He was going to fulfill the law and to be redeemed on that day. What we could never do, Jesus accomplished. And it was all done for us and in our place because we couldn't do it. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ accomplished two big things that Paul tells us about here in Galatians. First, he says that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And second, he says that we receive adoption as God's children. First, Jesus was sent to redeem those under the law. That word redeem means to buy back something that is rightfully yours. I once heard this illustrated in this way. There was a child who spent his entire summer break building a little model boat. It took him all summer to make this little boat, and he loved it. He meticulously put all the pieces together. He glued and nailed everything with care. He went so far as to turn the little masts on this boat uh, on a lathe himself. He hand-sewed the sails. He took care in in painting it his very favorite color of red. 
and he painted details all over it in gold. It looked exactly like he wanted. He loved this little boat. He had made it with care. He had lovingly taken the time to make it just so. And when the time came and it was finally finished, the paint was finally dry, he was so excited about its maiden voyage out on the water. As he put this little boat that he he loved so much on the water, he watched with glee as it floated. He watched as the sails caught that first little gust of wind. And then he watched as the wind shifted and gusted and pulled his little boat away from shore and out of his grasp. He watched in sadness as his beloved boat blew away. He went home distraught at the loss of that little boat. And it was a couple days later that he was riding in the back of the car through town with his family. And as they came across a shop, he saw in the front window a little red boat that looked like his. He had his parents stop and pull over. And with joy, he he got out and looked at the boat, realizing it, it was the one that he had crafted. So joyfully, he ran in to talk to the shop owner and let him know that that was his boat, that he had come back to claim it only to have the shop owner say that he had paid good money for that boat, and if the boy wanted it, he was going to have to pay for it. So the boy dug in his wallet. The boat cost everything he had, but he gave all of his cash to that shop owner to buy back his boat, to redeem his boat. You see, it was his. He loved it, he made it, and he bought it back out of the hands of a shop owner to claim it as his own once again. And that is what God has done for us. You see, we are separated from him because of our sin. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, he has bought us back. We are beloved by him, and so he redeemed us, even though it cost him everything. Secondly, Paul tells us that through Christ, we are adopted as God's children. Scripture teaches that by nature, after the fall... We are sinful and unclean. It teaches that we are slaves to sin and that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. It teaches that we are not just shackled to the grave, but shackled to hell because of our sins. But because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, by grace and through faith, our sins can be forgiven. Our relationship with God can be restored, and we can be freed from our slavery to sin and be called the children of God. As God's children, we become co-heirs with Christ, heirs of life and life eternal in paradise with our God and King. You see, the time was right to send Jesus so that the world might know all that God had done to redeem us, to buy back fallen but beloved sinful humanity. And the time is still right for us to hear about it and respond to the gospel. Martin Luther, in his very first of the 95 Theses, said this, When our Lord and Master Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And 2 Corinthians 6.2 says this, For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see, today is the day of our salvation. Today is the day for us to repent once again and to hear once again of the finished work of Christ for us. It is a finished work that is enough even to cleanse 
you from all unrighteousness and from all sin to redeem even you and me and enough so that we might become the children of God with all the benefits and promises that come with it. So freely confess your sins once again before God and trust that he is faithful and just to forgive. Trust that Christ and everything he accomplished was done for you. And then leave here walking in love for your neighbor in light of the mercies of Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when the time was right, you sent your Son, born of a woman and born under the law, to redeem us and to make us your children. Lord, we thank you that today the time is still right to hear about that sacrifice because we are still sinners in need of redemption. Lord, allow us to freely confess before you and trust that Christ was for us. Lord, as we now get ready to go to your table, I pray that you would allow us to come freely confessing all of our sins and to come trusting that at the table we are given the body and blood of your crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of all of our sins. We pray these things, Lord, in your holy name. Amen.